นโมทัสสะปะกวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะปะกวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะปะกวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะมุทังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิเราเห็นว่าทุกคนที่อยู่ในโลกนี้ในโลกนี้ในโลกนี้ในโลกนี้ในโลกนี้ในโลกนี้ในโลกนี้ในโลกนี้ในโลกนี้ในโลกนี้
are not necessarily going to be interested in the same things. They'll be caught, um, and in saying that, I'm not meaning to be judgmental, but like, like we, like all of us, will be caught in, our, in their thoughts and feelings, desires, wants and fears. And yet the way that they'll be um, approaching the situation will be in a way which is perhaps different than that which we're starting to get a feeling for in our Buddhist practice. So the Dhamma practice is, is called against going against the stream because it seems to be against the flow of habits, the flow of the conditioned uh, mind and, and tendencies that we've inherited through no fault of our own, necessarily. It's not a blame game, but it's a matter of recognizing how things are uh, for, for me and in my experience, each of us doing it for us, for ourselves, in our experience, and looking for ourselves. Where is, where is the suffering in our lives? Where does it come from? And it's a really rare and valuable uh, realization, uh, insight that we can have, that the kind of good news of the Buddhist teaching, that the suffering essentially uh, is not something that's coming from the outside, it's a matter of our circumstances. The world is doing it to us. Or we are doing it. Uh, uh, or you know, the, the facts of our lives are making us suffer. But it's something that we are doing to ourselves, in a manner of speaking. Our own relationship to what we feel. It's not what we feel. Uh, the desires and the pains and, and uh, joys, the ups and downs of our lives and our experience. It's not that that makes us suffer, essentially, but it's our relationship to it. It's how we relate to what we're actually experiencing in any moment. And that can be uh, such an important insight because we realize that we have the power uh, in any moment to uh, release ourselves from the suffering right now. Maybe not from all suffering forever, but right now there is what there is and there's our this is a manner of speaking, but there's our relationship to it. So we have these practices and, uh, that we do and ways that we start to get a feeling for this, and yet most people around us won't be interested. They won't be. Uh, if if uh, somebody at work gets angry at you, they won't necessarily be interested in reflecting on their anger <laughs> and learning from it. They'll believe in it totally, just as we do often uh, get angry and believe in our anger totally. But we've got this extra sort of insight, those of us who've appreciated the Buddhist teaching in this way, that, well, geez, this anger is doing nothing but making my life miserable. It, you know, Whether it's right or wrong is not the issue. It hurts. It's causing me pain and it's causing others pain, which in turn causes me pain again. And it's a whole mess of suffering, as they say, uh, and I'm interested. I'm, I see the possibility to uh, to not do what I'm doing to myself and to others by being caught and believing in the anger. And I'm interested in learning how not to. So we all have this interest, or most of us do, who come to the practice. And then it's a big question. How do we actually 
do it? How do we make it happen in our lives? Because it's so uh, difficult to find time to meditate or the right kind of situation like this where we uh, have a place that our minds and our bodies are given such uh, extraordinary uh, support, space, and encouragement to quiet down and to reflect. Mostly it's not like that for most of us. I mean, it's one reason, not the only reason, why people choose to go to monasteries. Uh, you might be surprised to know that monasteries, you know, it doesn't, suffering doesn't end when you get into the monastery. <laughs> it, we t- you take it all with you. And uh, just as um, one of my favorite philosophers from the 80s, Buckaroo Banzai, said in his movie, Buckaroo Banzai in the Eighth Dimension, um, wherever you go, there you are. And that's true. If you go to a monastery, you take on the robes, you, uh, you're still there. You don't get wiser just because you become a monk. But you do have some support that you didn't have before. Uh, for some, it'll be support that is very helpful. It won't be for everybody. But all of us have a kind of, as I was saying the other night, a toolbox kind of, of different practices, different rituals we can if we choose uh, learn to uh, enact and um, relate with and, and discover for ourselves how do we apply it for ourselves in our own lives. And that then gives some structure which in itself can be a support wherever we are in using, using those teachings or practices as a kind of a, um, as ballast, as a, as a reference point so that we can uh, in those moments where we, say, get caught or feel the anger coming up and we're about to get caught, how do I practice now? How do I, how do I expand my meditation practice, my, my insight practice, so that it's not just the times I'm meditating or reading a Dhamma book, but that it starts to encompass more and more of the whole of my life, whatever that might in, uh, include. And so even just short sort of points of remembering what it is that, that ha, has been valuable in our, in, in, in our practice in the past, choosing to kind of make a practice of remembering that throughout the day at random times, maybe a bit like Ajahn Punadhamma was saying the other night with this reminding yourself about dreams. Um, just choosing random points, it could be even five seconds or ten seconds, but coming into yourself in a way where you remember you remember your mindfulness, you remember your awareness. And in that way, it's like a drop of, um, a drop of clear consciousness. It may not feel clear, but it's a drop of, of greater consciousness, greater depth into the day, into a part of our lives that wouldn't normally have it. So one thing that I would encourage, because I found it very helpful, is certainly not to think that I that our practice takes place when we're meditating in terms of formal meditation on a cushion or during a retreat, but that the practice is our life. And it's a matter, just like in a meditation session, where you know it might be 10 minutes of clarity and uh, 50 minutes of fantasy and sleep, but you're trying to you know, find ways, not be judgmental and, you know, uh, be willing to continue to apply oneself in ways that eventually more and more consciousness comes into your meditation session and less and less 
unconsciousness, restlessness, sleep. And just in that way, we can use that as an image for the, the whole of our life, maybe even just taking a day at a time. It might be 95% unconsciousness and living on automatic pilot, and 5% clarity, and maybe 4 of that 5% is our meditation for half an hour in the morning or an hour in the morning or whatever it, whatever it might be. But with that idea of just starting to be clearly conscious of what's happening in this moment now, and that's it, just one moment at a time is enough, just starting to bring that more and more into our, our lives at different points during the day. And with this attitude of going against the stream of habit, and that's just the way I'd put it to myself as I'm speaking now, but it's not fighting the habit, but going against the stream in the sense of not following it either. So you have this kind of uh, encouragement or opportunity, um, uh, the kind of gift in the teachings, where instead of being caught in the normal um, kind of between the two poles that we normally feel caught by when something that we don't like or don't want is arising like an unskillful state such as anger or jealousy, say. You know, we get jealous and we think, I'm Buddhist, I know better than this, I shouldn't be jealous and I'm going to be suffering as long as I'm jealous. Well, that all might be true on an intellectual level, but the fact is we're, we're, we're getting caught in it right there and we're proliferating on top of it and creating more of a problem. There is also the opportunity of being with uh, the feeling, the whatever, all that it includes. Well, it may be helpful to call it jealousy and identify it, you know, label it. It may not be. But all that this moment includes, and if it's very uncomfortable uh, and unpleasant, whatever the, the quality of, of dissatisfaction with what's happening now is, usually we're caught between these two poles of having to, if it's unpleasant, we don't want it. We have to block it out and avoid it, or else we get caught in it. So if it's jealousy, we don't want to be jealous. We just block it out, we try to avoid it, we try to fix the jealousy by cultivating mudita. So you try to plaster sympathetic joy, sympathetic appreciation for the person over your feeling of jealousy to try to cancel it out and get rid of the suffering that you feel when you feel this unwanted feeling of jealousy, this unworthy feeling of jealousy. And there may be times when that's a, that's a skillful experiment to make. But the fact is that suppression and avoidance in that way, it won't solve the problem because the next time jealousy comes, and it probably will come again, maybe even stronger because we've been burying it and pushing it down, and it might catch us unawares at a time when we're not prepared for it. When the next time it comes, we'll be in exactly the same position. We'll have to try to get rid of it in order not to suffer. So then the other pole, of course, is suffering with it. You just get caught by it, identify with it, and you get jealous, or you get angry, or you get fearful. And usually that's the two sort of poles that everybody uh, feels um, is the only the kind of the only choice, so we can, if we're not careful, have a view of practice that it's a way to get rid of the things we don't want. It's a way f- to avoid them so that they won't arise. But the Buddhist teaching gives us this third liberating option where you can actually experience what you're experiencing. Say it's a feeling of jealousy. Fully, 
without having to avoid it in any way, without having to uh, block it out or, or destroy it, and yet also not act on it, not identify with it, see it for what it is in the moment without becoming it. And this is something which, as all of you who have been practicing a little bit know, it's not something you can really tell, tell another person how to do if they haven't got a feeling for, for practice yet. It's something we've got to each learn for ourselves how it works. We might articulate it. We might express it differently uh, to ourselves. But it's for me, it's this way of being able to, with a feeling awareness, so being fully aware and freely aware of what comes. Uh, so it's a feeling I don't want. I'm getting caught again in one of those old patterns I've been caught in again and again for the last 20 years. And I've been a monk all this time. And why is it not going away? And why don't I learn? Not getting into any of that proliferation, but just staying right now in this moment with the suffering of it now and being fully with it, so allowing it fully to be present. No need to get rid of it, change it in any way, and yet not uh, act on it, not believe it, not get caught in it. And so all of this emphasis um, on cultivating awareness, uh, mindfulness, presence, that we've been talking about, we've been using different words, and so on. For me, is this is one of the greatest uh, sort of benefits, uses, is that it starts to provide the capacity to do that. We have this awareness. We can be aware of something as it's happening. And that may sound simple, obvious, um, trite at first to some of us, but its profundity, the the effects of applying this simple method of just being aware now and nothing else, nothing else, no effort to change, no, no judgment of what's happening, but a full and feeling awareness, so not a heady, brainy awareness where we're splitting off from what we feel because that then is avoiding, that's a way of avoiding the feeling. So it's fully feeling, fully allowing what's happening and not being caught by it. And then there's this kind of a transformative, um, for me, kind of a transformative relationship um, that's there where I'm not, it's not threatening anymore. The jealousy is seen for what it is. It's, a, it's, it's, it's something which is coming up in, it's almost like in, as part of nature. It's, it's somebody presses a button and, you know, the machine goes kaping. So somebody says, you know, bush. And I feel a whole bunch of feelings kaping. And... <laughs> And I know, you know, it's not, I, I don't necessarily believe it anymore. It's not that I don't feel the feelings anymore. <laughs> and, and all of us will have these things that triggers, old patterns and so on. And yet the relationship to them can change. And as we know, easier said than done. You know, it's, 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 we can get a feeling for it. It's one of the great gifts of a retreat like this. We start to really get subtle. We're able to have the opportunity to get subtle and start really watching what's going on. And yet then we, we move out of this situation, uh, which is different, and so it's, it doesn't always trigger the same things that trigger our normal habits of unconsciousness or, or going into a state of automatic. And yet we go back into our usual situations, and those triggers are there. And so it's much harder not to go into a state of automatic uh, unconsciousness around things that are happening. So really this encouragement to start watching what's happening and get interested in it. So like for me, I guess 
one of the most important things that I've taken from these years uh, of practice has not been a, a, any particular technique, but just a general kind of um, attitude or pr- principle of watching myself, you know, just starting to notice myself as I, as I go through my day, the sense of watching myself live my life. You know, if, if you can just start to notice what's going on, notice your mind state at any particular time, notice our, you know, your feelings at any particular time, this sense of, of witnessing that we've been referring to in different ways um, starts to get stronger. It's like it gets watered. And those little drops that it may be only, you know, 0.01% of the day here and 0.02% of the day there, they start to have an effect. And before we know it, you know, it may take time, which is fine. Before we know it, this familiarity with the quality of witnessing what's going on in ourselves, witnessing our own minds and bodies, that familiarity becomes stronger. And then the sense of uh, a wider or, or a deeper awareness, it strengthens naturally. It kind of, it, it, it comes naturally. So my image for the Dhamma in, in terms of kind of cultivating it is one where it's, it's already present. So that's just an idea too that I'm creating right now. Actually, the Buddha would probably just remain silent because the reality is there's nothing there that you can point to. But as an image, rather than me thinking, I am an unenlightened uh, person and I have to kind of get the Dhamma by changing myself to um, get rid of this and get rid of that bad habit and cultivate this good habit and finally I will get inside. Rather than having that as the image uh, that I carry in my Dhamma practice, it's more that peace is already there. There's a a kind of underlying quietude, which is natural, you could say, to to who we are, in quotation marks. And that what we do when we get caught in our habits, and there's no judgment in this, it's just an observation, is like stirring up the water. And so we create ourselves by stirring up the still water, making waves and ripples, and then get caught in the waves and ripples and so on. But if if we start to notice the body of the lake, the body of the water itself, and uh, not get caught too much in what's happening, but are aware, then we start to, you know, we, we pull away from being involved in the habits that we're creating the ripples, not getting angry when we get angry, or, or fighting our anger, thereby creating another form of aversion. I'm angry at my anger. But this third way of an open feeling, awareness. And perhaps it's something close to what Ajahn Puddhadamo was referring to in terms of the highest meditation he was talking about being really just doing nothing, not needing to have any quality present whatsoever, doing nothing. And that in, in itself, I found, can be a really good practice. You can find out, you know, how does it feel? Dedicate a sitting where you're just going to do nothing. You're not going to meditate. You're not going to do anything except just stay awake. You know, don't fall asleep. Watch what's happening. And just sit there. And if you feel, you know, kind of like it's not going well or restless or whatever, that's all right. Just sit there with the restless. Don't do anything. And watch how it feels to not do anything. 
the mind might resist. You might find out that uh, I, I, you know, I have an attitude that I should be doing something, and this is wrong. Well, that's interesting. I get interested in the process that happens. You need to even take it really far and not even do anything with your body. You can sit on your bed, maybe take an hour and slump there on your bed and really not do anything. And then if you start drooling, just let the drool kind of come down. Don't do anything. You can keep breathing, but nothing. And just watch what happens to the mind. Just keep a a still awareness and watch how the mind doesn't like it. You know, the thinking mind does not like it. Who we are does not like it. Maybe. But this attitude of an interest in watching our own mind. This is, it, and my, by mind, I guess I mean mind-body. It's not just brainy mind. It's the, the body too. And noticing. So we start to notice it. We start to, we start to learn what are the effects of our actions, intentional actions of body, speech, and mind. Not by you know, telling ourselves that we know insights we've had in the past, not by reading books, but just through observation, we start to see, without even maybe you know thinking about it, we just start to see, like the you know hand close to the fire and it's painful and you pull away. You start to see that when we act in certain ways, which before we didn't realize were causing pain, we just see it's painful, and you move away. And this is something which is against the stream, because it's not. Uh, you know the the person, the the ego, the whatever you want to call it, the the the, the self, the complex of feelings that we're so attached to, and I think we like to fondle them as well as systems and structures. That doesn't like it when we pull out and just are with what is, do nothing with what is. It does not like it. It's against the stream. The stream is to be involved in some way. So cultivating this awareness and watching, learning, learning from observing our lives cultivating the sense of watching yourself as you live your life. And although that might sound like splitting into two people, it's not really like that. It's kind of uh, seeing your mind for what it is. At first we think we are our thoughts. Then we develop this sense of watching our thoughts. So it feels like, hey, I'm two people. I'm I'm me and then I'm the one watching me. How does that happen? But that's not really what's happening. It's we're seeing the thinking mind for what it is. It's, it's a conditioned process that's happening quite naturally. Uh, we start to see the, the triggers. We know we get into this situation and this will happen. This particular identity, me in this situation, is different than me in a different situation. We'll become different people uh, according to who we're relating to or what particular situation we're in or how the weather is. Uh, I can be a different person on a rainy day than I am on a sunny day. And that's an idea maybe we can all understand. But then really observing it for ourselves, you start to see how the process of, 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 of being somebody happens. 
and that it's not who we are. So we're not splitting off into somebody else. We're actually just, in a way, coming into um, who, the center of who we are, this awareness, a uh, sense of, of uh, stillness, the context, the context rather than the content. And we start to see how we create suffering. So with this attitude of, of learning and interest and watching, just noticing where is the suffering right now, not in general in my life and analyzing it, although that has its place and may be useful at times too, but just moment by moment, taking one moment at a time, you know, right now, where is the suffering? Not looking for an intellectual answer, but observing with this feeling awareness. And sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't, we're caught. But all of us who come to this practice, uh, if we follow it through, we eventually see that we are responsible for it. We're not responsible for you know, the war in Iraq or suffering in, in that sense on the outer level, but in terms of how we are with right the moment right now, if we're suffering we can do something about it. We can stop doing it. We can release. <sighs> That's a relief to see it. Uh, and getting this sense of interest and, and uh, you know, an optimism, a kind of a, not optimism is the wrong word, but a, a, a confidence, a sadha, confidence, not only in the truth of the teachings, but in our ability, you know, that, that we, we can actually realize the Dhamma. It can be realized in this life. And it doesn't have to be seen as something which is so high and, and uh, uh, kind of shiny and is a, a, the full attainment of, of pure Nibbana, but even just the little insights, you know, the, the, the following the path away from suffering and towards release. These are things that we can, we can do. It takes... Uh, interest, it takes willingness, application, and not much more than that. It doesn't take much effort in the sense of of willpower or muscular effort, even the muscles of the mind. For me, it's more like the kind of of daring and courage that it takes to to let go uh, and to release and to fall back when we don't necessarily know what we're falling back into. And that takes, it takes trust. It takes sadha as the Pali word for confidence or trust. It can be confidence in the teachings. And uh, for me, it's also a sense of a trust in the Dhamma in terms of my experience. And uh, that comes, you know, through practice and it comes through following an ethical lifestyle. So sometimes we don't, you know, we, we feel like the precepts, the five precepts are something that are just... Um, you know, kind of basic parts of the teachings and obvious, uh, you know, nice things to do that are part of religion, but we really want to get to the heart of the matter and get into the, the philosophical or the, um, you know, the insight teachings. But those precepts uh, are, although they're couched in a negative way, you know, refrain from doing this, refrain from doing that, refrain from doing the other thing, if we do refrain from doing uh, killing, from harming others, from harming ourselves, then what we're doing is we're refraining from stirring up the water. 
we're not creating the ripples anymore. We're allowing the pond to still so that we can see the stillness that's already there. So even though the precepts might be couched in a negative way in the sense of don't do this and don't do that, of course they're not commandments. Nobody's telling us. And they're expressions of of a kind of optimistic view of life um, or a, a, a... not sure optimistic is the right word, but a positive view of life in the sense that the fundamental reality is one of purity. And that if we just stop doing the things that obstruct that, stop harming others, you know, stop harming ourselves, stop confusing others, stop confusing ourselves, then we don't have to make the purity. We don't have to get it. We don't have to generate it by following a precept. It's already there. We just stop muddying the waters. So following the precepts, uh, for those of you who you know wish to have more of a structure that you're working with in your lives, since you, you're not uh, in a monastery and you don't have to do these things, using the precepts as ways to not just reflect on your actions, but also really trusting in the the goodness, as it, for lack of a better word, the goodness of uh, what comes in the human heart when we when we are very careful, very careful about not uh, creating any kind of possible harm, and so using the precepts, uh, the five precepts, which are ethical precepts, and then if we wish to, we can do a little bit and I'm not necessarily recommending this, but it is open to all who wish, a little bit of the kinds of renunciatory precepts that we've been following during this retreat. So the sixth and the seventh and the eighth are not uh, ethical precepts. They're renunciatory ones, and they're sort of uh, rather arbitrary possibly, but uh, what they do is they create a boundary uh, so that we can see ourselves better because we have something against which we bump up. And they do help to simplify our lives, if that's which, what we wish to do. It is simpler uh, not getting involved in lots of uh, uh, entertainment and lots of eating and lots of sleeping. But it's in no way a judgment. It's not saying that any of these things are wrong. It's, it's uh, useful tools in the toolbox that we can use both, on the one hand, to simplify our lives, and on the other hand, to turn up the pressure to kind of have something where we have to stop every time we, you know, want what's not allowed so that we get to see the kinds of patterns that are there maybe latent and we're not aware of. So if every time uh, I feel just a little bit uncomfortable, I might not be conscious of that, but if I can go to the fridge, open up, have a snack, then maybe that satisfies the discomfort. And there's nothing wrong with going to the fridge and having a snack. No judgment whatsoever. But if we get interested in finding ways to know what's there in terms of, our, of our, what's driving us, as kind of unconscious motivations, emotional motivations behind our thinking, behind our relationships, behind our actions, then it's really useful to have things against which we, we, we bump up a container. And it you know, doesn't have to involve eating. It doesn't have to involve... Uh, uh, any of the official uh, kind of precepts that we have, the eight precepts, but they're there and they've been used many years and there are other people who do them too. So they are uh, a kind of a support structure which we can use not just personally, um, 
but they they give us sort of an access to a whole community of practitioners who've been using them for many millennia, centuries and centuries, back into the past as well as today. So there are those we can choose to use. And being kind to ourselves. I think uh, oftentimes in the West we really have to remind ourselves of this again and again because it, it is a really judgmental culture that we're brought up in. Um, it's not just the West. It's uh, anyone with a kind of uh, modern education tends to get uh, taught to uh, have a critical mind because a critical mind is very useful. It allows you to you know, uh, uh, make useful scientific insights when you apply it to nature and, and uh, there's nothing wrong with it with a, cr- a critical mind in itself in terms of uh, um, discerning, discernment, maybe not critical, but discerning and identifying and, and judging, saying, well, there's this and it matching it up against that, the value is different and so on. But when it turns against ourselves, then it becomes like toxic and we tend to have that, uh, whether or not we're we feel like we have that in our character. We, we're living in a culture where that's very, very present. And so I find it's very useful to, to use it as a practice, a loving-kindness, metta practice, even just as a reflection, just reminding myself to be kind, to be kind to myself, to, be, to have humor, tolerance, you know, and to find ways to laugh and with myself as I bumble along in my practice, trying to you know, failing for the 22nd time doing this thing and then watching, oh, there I am judging myself as a failure again. And having this sense of of a kind, tolerant uh, embrace in which I'm, I'm experimenting with bringing these practices of awareness and mindfulness And it becomes interesting, you know, it becomes interesting to look at how, once the observation becomes something that we trust, once we trust our awareness more, it becomes interesting to see how easy it is to suffer and possibly how easy it is in a particular moment to let it go, to let that suffering go. It's not necessarily something we have to think of as a gigantic huge boulder on top of us that we've got to get through and at the end it's Nibbana. It's happening every moment. Moment by moment by moment we do it again, we do it again, we do it again. And if we get to see where that clinging is happening, the upadana, the the mind identifying with, clutching on to that which is arising, if we get to see that, there is the possibility of hands-off, just being. And for that, we need, to, we need to have a clear enough awareness to see it. And so our interest grows in, in, in moving away from those things which tend to stir up the awareness, not because we're judgmental of, of say, entertainment or movies or, or, or music or whatever it is, but because we realize if we get involved in such and such activity, what well, the result is we see, you know, it takes a while for it to kind of settle down again. And we start to really value 
this sense of just watching. And we also feel this appreciation, at least I have started to, over the years, feel this appreciation of a coolness, moving towards coolness, uh, rather than towards involvement in pleasurable uh, sense stimuli, you know, sense the sense pleasures. Again, no, no judgment at all. Sense pleasures are great. I still like following the Red Sox, even though I'm over in Amravati sometimes. I look on the internet and if they're winning the World Series, I allow myself a, a, a kind of reawaken in my old identity, and I go, yeah! And it's, and it's lovely, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's an observation that we can bring to our involvement with you know, senses, sense pleasures. And that uh, is something we get more and more interested in. And it's just, for me, it's like a matter of... of, 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 of uh, natural wish to move away from 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 being stirred up and hot and towards being cool and calm and there's a great sense of of kind of a uh, a joy which is not the joy of of, of, of feel good happiness but it's kind of the joy of, of not needing anything to be any particular way you don't ha- it doesn't matter if it gets fixed it's already okay and that becomes so much better than any sort of, even if the Red Sox won the World Series for the next 22 years, that wouldn't come anywhere close to the couple of moments of joy of not needing anything to be any particular way. So the Dhamma is said to have a taste, a particular taste, like the sea, wherever you go in the world, the Buddha said that you can always tell the sea because it has the same taste, and that's the taste of salt. And the Dhamma has the taste of, of, of liberation, of freedom. Of, of release. And this is something we can start to, uh, just for ourselves, find a way to, to notice, get a feeling for. Notice how the mind, what the mind does in our lives as we live it. It doesn't have to be in a controlled and calm situation. Just any moment, you can just notice the mind, what it's doing. You might start noticing how it's very common to come into a situation with, with an idea of how it should be. And so we, we're bringing that idea in and then comparing our experience to our idea of how we want it to be or how it should be. So this comparison that's going on constantly, at least that's what I've noticed, I really start to use that as a practice to watch comparing, the comparing mind, because that's, that's really getting close to where it happens in terms of making myself suffer. There's how I, how I want it to be or how I expect it's going to be. And then, if I compare, I will suffer. If I compare, if I believe in the comparison, I will suffer. So this, just using, finding ways to use a practice like that, you know, it doesn't matter if you feel so peaceful or not. You can do it, you know, on a, on a sort of, on a rough level as well as a refined level. Uh, at any time, you know, in your life, just notice the comparing mind, comparing, you know, expecting things to be a certain way. And then what does it take to allow them to be as they are? to allow the drool to come down the chin, or hopefully if you're in a work situation, you don't have to quite do it to that extent physically. (laughs) But allowing things to be as they are. And then there's the mind that compares and wants it to be different. And the suffering that results from that. Hmm.
So just finding ways each for ourselves to bring this sense of awareness into our life, you know, and it may not be possible, it almost certainly won't be possible to do concentration meditation, you know, for most of the day for most of you. You won't be able to sit, you know, wherever you sit for work or walk or talk to whoever you're talking and, and also follow your breath, you know. But there are ways to bring the practice into a greater, greater sort of portion of the day of one's life. And that was a little bit what I was trying to talk about the other night, about using a practice rather than concentration practice, but as something subtly that you have going on as you do what you do. Uh, so you can you know, use the repetition of the word putto silently, which is what they do in the monasteries in Thailand, although, I, as I say, I haven't used that very much. But what I have used, I would recommend to anybody, which is the sensations in the body as it, as it moves in any, any particular way. You can always come back to a sensation or some sensations in your body. And that's something that you can do, like you can notice, like right now I'm talking and you're listening, hopefully. And... <laughs> And you, we can just be doing that, or we can also, you know, you could say, you know, be noticing how your toes feel, maybe even just twiggle them a little bit. Unless your, your, your legs are numb, which happens to some of us, you could use your fingers. And you can listen and do that at the same time as, as, as you're listening. And as someone was mentioning the other day, I think it was Ajahn Punadama when we were talking about it, that uh, uh, someone, or maybe in one of the groups, someone mentioned that they've done some research um, this is the first I've heard of it, but I can I can uh, believe it that that it, for children in terms of learning uh, things, when children are just taught something on the blackboard, and then another set of children are, are taught the same thing, but they're also supposed to be stepping over a, a line back and forth as they're learning the thing by rote. The ones who have to be doing the the kind of action at the same time as learning remember it much better, and it's this kind of Thing, where at first it doesn't feel natural because it's sort of hard, but if you do it, you know, you use, you get in touch with your body, and just a little bit, if, you know, don't try to do it 100% of the time because then we'll just fail, but just pick some times during the day where, okay, I'm having this conversation, or I'm on the bus now, and I'll just be with the sensations in my body, as well as whatever else I'm doing. It's not that I focus totally on those, it's that I'm, you know... Uh, paying for my bus ticket and stuff, and uh, I'm kind of just with noticing my body at the same time. You can use the sound of silence, which is what Ajahn Sumedho often teaches, the way that he uses it, which is this sort of, if you're sensitive to this uh, vibrational sound that some of us can hear more easily than others, it can also be, it can always be tuned into, and you could use that in that way as well. But finding something so that you can kind of bring this sense of watching into normal activity where your mind is not going to be so concentrated. It's not going to be kind of one-pointed in a focused, focused way. But you will be mindful. You'll, you'll, you'll be aware of, of, of each moment as, as it's happening. And the mind might not feel peaceful, but that's all right. You're, you're, you're still bringing mindfulness through. And that leads to a kind of... Uh, a similar, if not the same kind of uh, unshakable presence of mind, uh, which is not dependent on conditions. It's not one that you've gained through excluding everything to the to only following one particular meditation object. 
but it's including everything, and yet you're practicing it being aware now, and being aware now, and being aware now, and you start again and again. So you don't have to worry about you know, carrying a big weight or developing something which you're supposed to maintain. It's just a matter of willingness to reapply your, your awareness or your attention. Reapply again ah, and reapply again. And if we keep doing that, it can become more and more continuous and not so, so choppy. So that's something that you could, uh, all of us, I know it can be done in, in any situation. Um, you can always feel something in your body. And uh, it can be used in that way where you're not focusing into it, but just using it as a kind of a light anchor uh, as you're doing whatever else you're doing. And in this way then, eventually, we start to get familiar with this watching, this, this sense of witnessing that we've been talking about in different ways. And it's not a split, as I say. Uh, there's kind of, perhaps at some point, there's a kind of a flip that happens where it becomes experienced and maybe some of you have experienced this in your meditation at, at times, where it's not as if I am a person moving through the world trying to be aware, but it's rather that awareness, you know, you, you, you flip into awareness, and then the, mor- the, the world, everything that the world is, is moving through that. And so it's, it's not as if I'm moving, you know, I, I am me in this room, and then I'm going to go somewhere else in terms of space or, I'm thinking what I'm thinking. It's just a matter of being aware of everything as it arises. And then the world can be allowed to, as much as possible to move through me. So that's where it starts to lead, possibly. At least that's what I've found. Using the senses, using awareness. If you're in your place of work, you know, again, and you, you find it's really hard to, uh, you know, okay, right, I remember all that stuff about awareness, but right now I just can't do it because I'm caught in my thought and so on. There are things, you know, sometimes you have to just, you know, grit your teeth and, and kind of clench your fists and try to, you know, break yourself out of some habit if you're really, really caught. And that's not the recommended way because that's creating more karma there, but sometimes... It's useful if you find you're about to, you know, hit somebody and you need to stop yourself. Not that that's necessarily happening to most of us most of the time, but it might be. But there are other ways that I've found. And one is just to very quickly go through the senses. So we have these sense doors, you know, in Buddhism. You have not five senses, but six. So not just the sight and sound and uh, smell, taste and then feelings, but also there's everything the mind is doing and thinking and perceiving. That's called, that's the sixth sense. Because we can actually be just as aware of that as we are of the other senses. And so you can just run through those as well. Uh, if you have a minute um, uh, in a particular situation and just notice as much as possible what sight as sight, sound as sound, uh, smell as smell, if that works for you. But for me, the two I use usually is sight and sound. So you notice, like right now, we're in a room full of people, and, and we can, if we open our eyes, we can see each other sitting here. 
But it's perception. It's the quality of perception that tells us that these are people and this is a room and that's a wall and this is a microphone and so on. Actually, what our eyes are seeing is just a field of color and shapes. And we can, we can just notice that. We can try to you know, see the shapes, see the colors, red and, and so on. And even that, labeling it as red is, is, is adding something to it. It's a field of color. And then it's afterwards my mind starts saying, yes, that's, these are people and this is a room and so on. And same with sounds. I mean, many of us have had, probably had this experience before, maybe in meditation or maybe on drugs or maybe just any, any time. But you hear a sound and you just don't know what the heck it is. What is that? And then suddenly, you know, you realize it's, it's the radiator creaking or a bird outside. Or you might see something uh, that you just cannot recognize. And then, ah, right, it's, it's peanut butter. So, using, going through the senses just briefly can sometimes be a way of getting, kind of stepping back and uh, getting into a sense of, of, of witnessing the present moment in a different way. So those are just a few tools um, that I found useful for the toolbox as we move towards the uh, latter part of this retreat. And uh, yeah, it's um, something I just uh, uh, kind of feel happy to be part of a retreat like this because it is so worth it and so rare in the world and and so uh, something which is um, honorable uh, for all of us who are doing it, even if we might feel like a failure because we have a very strong critical mind we don't feel like we're doing it right or whatever. It's really something quite noble for each one of you to be coming here and, and, and making this kind of effort in this way. Whatever, kind of, you know, however it's been, no assessment necessary. Just the willingness to practice is something the world really needs. And it's something uh, that we also uh, uh, can discover that, that uh, is what we really need as well. So um, I'll leave you with those words tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.